Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 11. And we're going to talk about Paul's statement here. It says, I magnify my ministry. All right, so by way of introduction, when you hear someone go, I magnify my ministry, does that sound arrogant to you? Here's the problem we have with the Bible. We have the written word. We have what he's saying in context. We don't know his tone of voice. We don't know his body language, which are the other two components of how to communicate. So he could sound like a punk. I magnify my ministry out of my way. You know, this is mine. This is my turf. But really, it's the opposite of what we have so much today in churches. For some reason, for some people, you have to beg them and, and, and groan and, and, you know, condemn them or something just to get them to operate in their spiritual gifts. Paul's the opposite. Paul's going, no way. I magnify. I don't shy away. You don't have to coerce me. This is what I'm here for. So he actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, woe is me if I don't. He's saying, this is what I've been built for. I didn't know it at birth. I didn't even know it at 20 years old. But now I know it. This is why I'm here. So woe, I'd be a mess if I don't get to do what God created me to do. Now, I have up here, there's two kinds of horses. The first kind is like you're, you're slapping it with the reins and giddy up, giddy up, get going. The other one is, whoa, boy, we got a live one here. That's how Paul was. Let me at it. I magnify my ministry. Now, we're in this thing called the parenthesis in the book of Romans. There's 16 chapters, but chapters 9, 10, and 11 are this parenthesis, if you will, of how God is dealing with the Gentile nations and the Jewish nation. For a real quick recap, chapter 1, if you remember when we started that, Paul was saying, you know, those, those Gentiles, they are such sinners. What a bunch of scuzz. Chapter 2, you know us Jews, we're the same way. We're just as guilty. By chapter 3, he would sum it up and say, We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So now, in three chapters, he's convinced us we're sinners in need of forgiveness. In chapter 4, he introduces righteousness by faith. Not by trying to keep the 613 commandments. You're not going to do that. And he uses Father Abraham as an example. Before circumcision, before the law, before Moses, here was Abraham who God declared righteous because he believed God. He wasn't trying to establish it on his own. So that's chapter 4. In chapter 5, it opens up, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 is super important. This person is saved. They are born again. They are standing right in God's presence. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Chapter 6 is his doctrine, his belief, his mindset. He goes, I, I get it. Now, I used to be a slave of sin, but now I just uh, reckon that to be dead, and now I'm alive to God. Great theology, great doctrine. The problem was chapter 7. He tries to apply his great theology, and he doesn't get it. He fails miserably. He, I don't I just promised God I would never do that again, and I end up doing it. And I promised God I would do this, and I don't do it. 
Oh, wretched man that I am. Remember how chapter 7 ends? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? The good news comes in chapter 8. The resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to do it on our own. So he says, if, if by the Spirit we're putting to death these deeds of the, of the, of the flesh, we're going to live. We're going to make it. And at that point, chapter 9, 10, 11 is this parenthesis. Chapter 12, he goes into the application of what he's done for 11 chapters. So chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice. It's holy. It's acceptable to God. It's, it's our reasonable service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good. I call it the gap. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? And then he gets into the spiritual gifts. He gets into submission to government in chapter 13, which is a hot topic. He gets into how to treat one another and how to have relationships. So that brings us back to this parenthesis. Now we have the overall picture. The parenthesis is this. It begins at the end of chapter 8 with a great verse, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It ends at the uh, end of chapter 11 where he goes, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Look at this. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. So understand at the end of this parenthesis, he's going, I know it's difficult to understand. But it's God. It's his wisdom. It's, it's unsearchable. Now, the parenthesis, again, deals with, here's God's dealing with the Gentiles and the Jewish nation. Christ came to the Jews. So why aren't all the Jews saved? Because in the Gospel of John, John says Jesus came to his own, the Jews, and his own did not receive him. So now, in chapter 11, God save some Gentiles to stir up jealousy in the Jews. Like, wait, they're getting, they're getting right with God? I need to get my A game on. And so this is the plan. He's using the Gentiles to, stir, to get saved and to stir up jealousy in the Jews. Just a fair warning, and we'll get into this more in a couple weeks. Beware of this thing called replacement theology. In a nutshell, it, it believes that God has divorced the nation Israel. He says, okay, you were my bride. I'm now divorced from you. And he has replaced the nation Israel with the Gentiles. That's bad theology. I don't buy it at all. Especially because of it really messes up the end time scenario. For you Bible student, and we'll get into this more in a couple weeks. Next week is special Thanksgiving and communion and all that. But in a couple weeks, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, friends, about what God's doing to Israel. And so we'll get into those end time scenarios. I just love that kind of stuff. But if you're into replacement theology, how do you explain Revelation? We're in chapter 7 of Revelation. It lists the 12 tribes of Israel, and there's 12,000 Jewish virgin men in each tribe that would go out and share the gospel with the world. You, if you're into replacement theology, you have to sometimes somehow spiritualize all that Instead of just reading it, it makes great sense all by itself. Okay, with that, let's read Romans chapter 11. I'm reading from the New King James Bible. Romans 11, we're picking up where Pastor Danny left off, saying I loved it that Paul was a Jewish Jew, 
I love that saying, meaning he was, he was the real deal. So, where is it? Here we go. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. It sought justification by keeping 613 laws. But the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, now he's going to quote from um, Isaiah 29. God has given them a spirit of stupor. Now we're going to talk about that in a second. Eyes that, that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. So they're still like this. And David, that's King David, the psalmist. He says, let their table become a snare and a, trump, a trap a stumbling block to, and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they don't see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should not fall? Meaning, Christ came to the Jews. Are they not going to get saved? Certainly not. Of course they're going to get saved. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their, full, their fullness? When they get back to, to Jesus as a nation, it's going to be awesome. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. Remember, Peter was an apostle to the Jews. Paul's an apostle to the Gentiles, and here's his famous four words. I magnify my ministry. Verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, those who are the fellows, fellow Jews, and save some of them. For if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world. What will be their acceptance but life from the dead? Okay, I'm loving this. Spirit of stupor. Here's what it means. It's, it's this attitude of deadness towards spiritual things. Uh, if you want to quote from Isaiah 29, he says, the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep. He's talking about his people. He goes, come on, wake up, you're asleep. In 1 John, in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 19, it says, we know we're of the Lord. And the whole world lies asleep in the arms of the wicked one. You ever see those, remember the old uh, Megadeth uh, or whatever those, you know, Black Sabbath and all those bands that had these demons on their album cover. Just ugly, ferocious looking demons. Can you imagine being, the Bible saying, it's like you're asleep in the arms of, of the demons. And just very comfortable. That's what the stupor is. So it's, it's, the Jews in Paul's day were overly uh, secure in their relationship with God. They're saying, well, of course I'm going to heaven. Go, Are you kidding? I can prove my lineage goes back, back to, you know, Abraham. Goes back to Moses. Goes back to King David. Of course I'm in. What, what, what's there to worry about? And so their security, they were overly secure. It became their ruin. They became, they fell asleep. Uh, and it's like my, I had a secretary once. And she was trying to share with her dad his need to get right with Jesus. He goes, I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. I was born in America. So I uh, imagine it. Of course, I'm the next thing. You know, we have in God we trust on our coins and stuff. So that's the idea. They, I'm not concerned about going to heaven, but because I was born in this way, I'm going to, to be there. Here's an example of what it's like to be spiritually dull. 
to be in a spiritual stupor. Uh, they don't see their need to get right with Jesus. Now, in Mark 3, if you can turn there really fast, uh, you can read it with me. I'm there. I won. Uh, it's Jesus on a typical day in church. Do you understand? Going to church with Jesus, it's the only way to go, but it's also radical. So he goes to church, and as he entered the synagogue, this is Mark chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man there who had a withered hand. Now, Luke says specifically it was his right hand. And so they watched Jesus closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath and so that they may accuse him. And he said to the one with the withered hand, step forward. Would you? Would you do that? What, are you embarrassing me, Jesus? You call me out in front of me? They know I'm, I've got a withered hand. Let's not rub it in. Step forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do bad, to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, meaning Jesus was ticked because he knew their hearts, says he knew their thoughts in, in, um, in Luke. He's grieved at the hardness of their hearts. He says, what are you doing in church? What are you doing in synagogue if you don't want to see God move? Bumped at the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately planned with the Herodians against Jesus how they might kill him, how they might destroy him. This is, this is what's going on. So the man with the withered hand, his enemies, the Jewish people who hated Jesus, are wisely connecting Jesus with the greatest need in the room. I think that's really cool. Even his enemies are going, I bet he goes to the guy with a withered hand. I'll put 10 shekels on it. What do you say? Connecting Jesus with the greatest need in the room. Do you know he does that this morning? You might be here with this withered hand. Man, I'm so embarrassed. I keep it under the, under the covers, you know. Keep it under my shirt. I don't want people to see this part of me. And yet they knew. I bet. I bet Jesus meets that guy's need. So this man had an advantage over me and you. His his need couldn't be hidden. He might try, but everybody knows. He's got a withered hand, man. He's got a bum right hand. He can't use it. It's just, it's sad. You see, you and I come to church, and we kind of work overtime covering our withered hand. It might not be a body part. It might not be a hand. It might be a soul. It might be a mind. It might be something we're going through. And it's like we work overtime to put on our Sunday face. I don't want anybody to see. And then here Jesus said, hey, stretch out your hand. Come on up here. I, he has a decision to make. Is he going to complain? What are you, making fun of me? You're going to make a spectacle in front of my friends? You know, and then he says, stretch out your hand. He has a decision. Either you obey or you argue. Jesus, don't you think? If I knew that's all it would take, I would have done it as a kid. I'm an adult. I mean, come on, what are you, mocking me? What are you going to make fun of me in front of everybody? You can complain or you can obey. Why don't you try? Stretch out your hand because what's different, a doctor isn't saying that, though doctors are good. 
You're not looking in the mirror psyching yourself up to do it. Jesus, God in the flesh, is saying, do it. You can complain or stretch it out. He stretched it out. Now here's the deal. The spirit of stupor found fault. This is what the spirit of stupor does. Instead of seeing my need for Jesus, even going to church and seeing God do a miracle, I'll just, let's silence him. So they wanted to kill him, but basically they're trying to silence Jesus Christ rather than, why don't you rejoice? Why don't you be stoked that this guy who was born in this condition suddenly was set free, healed, and he's playing guitar with his right hand? Yeah, no, let's kill him. That's what the spirit of stupor does. So here's the deal. And we'll get back to this at the end. Is there a place in your life, physical, spiritual, mental, the soulish, where God says, hey, stretch out your hand this morning? You can either argue or obey. So America today has a spirit of stupor. Now, this is, uh, I just got back from a conference. There was a Calvary Chapel conference in Diamond Bar, California, where Raul Reese pastors, that's east of L.A., on the, off the Highway 10. And uh, fantastic, probably the best conference I've ever been to. I mean, it was just revival time. It was so refreshing. But one guy shared about this, uh, this bill that they, they just passed last month. But in context, we want to share that this is a verse I hear a lot lately from Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call good evil or evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. That's our day. That's what we're going through today. So California's governor, last month, October 2021, signed into uh, law this Bill AB 1184. And I want to read it to you. This bill, I'm quoting, prohibits insurance companies from revealing to the policyholder, that would be a mom and dad paying the bill, it, it, you, it can't reveal to the policyholder the sensitive services of anyone on their policy, including minor children, even though the policy owner is financially responsible for the services. These sensitive services... This is sad. It includes abortion, sexual assault treatment, drug abuse, mental health treatment, cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers, and sex change operations. In California, minors can consent to all of these sensitive uh, treatments, except for the sex change uh, surgeries, after the age of 12 under certain conditions, and consent to abortions at any age. Guys, this is a spirit of stupor that's fallen upon our land. Now, further, not only can your 13-year-old child make radical, life-altering decisions, such as having an abortion, without your knowledge or consent. Now, I've been told if they have a headache and need a Tylenol at school, they need to call mom and dad, but not for an abortion. Spirit of stupor. But your child can also use your family insurance policy to pay for that abortion. And when your insurance statement comes, there'll be no explanation of why you're being charged this. You owe us 10 grand. For what? Can't tell you. 
In fact, your insurance provider will be prohibited from disclosing to you what your own child has done and what your policy has covered. This is now law in California. Your minor child can actually choose to get treated with cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers, drugs which can have disastrous lifelong consequences without possibly being able to understand the in implications of what they're doing. And by law, you can't find out. So to sum this up, your child doesn't have to tell you. The doctors don't have to tell you. Your insurers don't have to tell you. But you have to pay for it. And you have to live with the consequences. Like try and, tr try and treat your child who's depressed. You don't know why. And by law, you can't find out why. This is a spirit of stupor that's fallen upon us. Now, this is in the context of the end times, right? Matthew 24 is classic. Jesus warned us in the context of living in end times. I believe we're in the end times, all right? Because sin or lawlessness abounds, the love of many will grow cold. Now, in 1 John, if you have taken notes, chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Sin is lawlessness. It means I'm living as if God has no laws or his laws don't apply to me. I'm something special. You know, like this basketball court. Uh, this is in bounds. That's out of bounds. But for the lawlessness, I don't have any out of bounds. I'm always in bounds. But Jesus said because sin's going to abound, a lot of people's hearts are going to grow cold. I always thought that was the world. I think it's Christians or at least includes Christians. Because I find I can have that thought like, at least I'm going to heaven. You ever look at someone's uh, determination to sin and sin and sin? And, uh, you ever been tempted to go, you want to go to hell that bad? Go to hell. That's the sign of what Jesus is talking about. The love of many will grow cold, and you don't want that. Now, of all the sinners Jesus is talking about, and Paul saw, who were the worst of them? Gentiles. Gentiles, they would just like, those scuzz, those disgusting, don't shake their hand, you might get something. Don't go breathing next to them, you might get something. Their, their sinful habits, it's just disgusting. Get away from them. Paul, here's Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. What? Yeah, that's where I go. I am drawn to those people. I just love sharing the good news and God's forgiveness and God's restoration and God's redeem, redemption and plan to go to heaven. What? They're disgusting. He goes, I magnify my ministry. Now, why was Paul so eager to magnify his ministry? Why was Paul so eager? And, and especially contrasting it with so many Christians that you've got to beg and plead and, and make them feel guilty before they'll do anything. I believe it's because of the Bema Seat judgment. You say, what is that? It's the reward seat. It's like what we have in the Olympics. Gold, silver, bronze. You ran the race. This is your reward for how well you did. There's a Bema Seat of Christ that does the same thing. We take it from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It'll also be in Romans 14. This is so important, we need to hear it more than once. So in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For we must all appear 
before the judgment seat or the bema seat in the original language the bema seat of christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done good or bad not according to what i meant to do not according to, oh, I, I, I was going to get around to that. Come on, Lord, you know my heart. We're going by what you did, good or bad. Now, it was once explained to me by Tom Mayo, Carrillo family. He said, you know, on that day, it's like you get all these rewards. You go, wow, this is crazy. And then you see this mountain of rewards over there. You go, well, Jesus, what's that? And Jesus will say, well, that's what I wanted to give you, but you were too busy what you did whether good or bad first corinthians 3 talks about going through the fire the works going through the fire if it was all wood hay and stubble it's gonna there's nothing left it was gold and precious gems doesn't worry about the fire bring it on and what comes out of the fire you're going to be rewarded for so the next verse when paul's talking about facing god in judgment Watch this, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Do you understand a lot of people don't like this verse? I mean, I'm not thrilled about it. I'm concerned about it. Paul the Apostle is saying that day of reckoning, that day when we face God, I'm not real excited about it. He didn't say knowing therefore the fear of the Lord or the reverence. He goes, terror! It, where God says, give me an account. So what, what is it not? It is not a, a judgment for my sins. Christ took care of that. Good news. Remember, paid in full was the word, uh, what he used in the Greek. Just paid in full. It wasn't, my, I did my part, you do your part. No, it's paid in full. Receive it as a gift. It has nothing to do with my sins. I will face consequences of my sins, but I will be forgiven. I will face consequences here on on earth so if that's what it's, it's not anything to do with my sins no what it is it's a spiritual report card see when I went to Florida from Maryland went a thousand miles south me and the guys we had a house to go to junior college it was really an excuse to go to surf and uh, I you know it was great until I had to go back home and show my dad my report card you have to understand, my mom and dad were brainiacs. I, I don't know what happened. Skipped a generation for me, I guess. But uh, my mom won the spelling bee contest, that kind of stuff. My dad had a master's degree in forensic science before anybody heard of what it was. So he's an FBI specialist. And, and so they're, they're dialed in. And I come home with a report card that had a D on it, or I dropped out. I dropped out of math one time. <laughs> my dad exploded. See, my parents paid my tuition. They paid it was like 50 bucks for rent. And then I had a job like at Red Lobster to pay for food and all that. So my dad's going, uh, hey son, I invested in your life. I set you up. I, I set you up for success. What did you do with it? I gave you this, I invested this, this cost me over here, and you dropped out of math? Now, I didn't have the heart to explain, well, that math class was 8 o'clock on Tuesday morning. And, you know, Monday night football was the night before. 
And on the East Coast back then, Monday Night Football started at 9 o'clock at night. And we were the only house that didn't have parents. And so everybody came over with whatever. And whew, that class at nine, 8 o'clock the next time was just hard. My dad goes, what? He didn't, I didn't offer that excuse. But the whole idea, I feared facing my dad and him asking, what did you do with my investment in you? I'm setting you up for success, and you're bailing. The Bema seat is a spiritual report card where I bring it before the Lord. And he goes, Mike, I set you up for success. I invested the blood of my son. I gave you the Holy Spirit. I gave you gifts of the Spirit. What have you done with my investment? That's why Paul goes, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, I have to turn in a spiritual report card. And it's not always really good. Now, every believer, if you're here and you're a believer, this day will come. You'll face God. You'll give an account. It is possible to hear, to have an abundant entry. Peter talks about this in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. He goes, you know what? It's possible to come to heaven, and it's like, um, what are the, the Grammy Awards? Is that what, where they always wear those stupid dresses that are so ugly, I can't believe the husband's going with them. You're wearing that thing? Just, maybe it's just me. I don't watch them. I'm sorry. It's just, uh, but yeah. <laughs> Did I insult somebody? Are you wearing that dress this morning? Sorry. The thing is, you, 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 they, they come up for the, the big, you know, movie, the movie stars, and they come up literally to the red carpet, and they're in their big limo, and they go, Wah! and that's an abundant entry. She's here. He's here. My hero. I love that movie. Do you want that when you go to heaven? It is possible. Peter says, if you do this right, if you understand a spiritual report card, can you imagine angels lining up? Is that him? Is that her? Are you kidding me? What? Abundant entry versus who's, who's Stangle? Who? What is that? What's he doing here? It is also possible to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And in, in Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. <laughs> and God says, come on in. Are you serious? I'm invited to this party. I get to, <laughs> yeah, what, what you did with the gifts, with the blood of Christ, with the forgiveness, with the ability, the, 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 the ways I set you up, with the opportunities to share. Are you kidding? Get on in here. <sighs> Not everybody's going to hear that. Remember the five talents? Lord, I gave, I made five more. Get on in here, man. Two talents, Lord, I made two more. Come on. One talent, yeah, I'll just give it back. Lord says, you wicked and lazy serpent. Not everyone's going to hear, well done. But I'm hoping everybody here will one day have that said to them. Now, here's our application. You ready? Spiritual stupor. Is there an area in your life where Jesus says, stretch out your hand? And I put hand in parenthesis. Is there an area 
where he's going, okay, you, you have worked overtime hiding this thing. Your withered head is up the sleeve and, you know, and you hate to shake people's hand because... <sighs> I had a friend who had leprosy. He was once on the leper colony in on Molokai. Pastor Ed had a church in Haleiwa. He was healed, cleansed of it, but he still had the effects. I made sure, I mean, he's dead now, he's with the Lord, but I made sure, give me your hand, man, I'm shaking that. I'm not ashamed of that. But here's, it's the idea that we can work overtime. We can have the, the worst backslide day on Saturday, and I don't want to show up in church. What if they see me? What if they know I, I'm inconsistent? The only thing I'm consistent at is being inconsistent. And what if they hurt? What if my mind thoughts were, were on the screen today? What in the world? What if they knew the troubled soul? What if they knew the desire to, to serve the Lord, but I just convinced it's never going to happen? This morning, the Lord, he's looking at you. Stretch it out. And you have a decision to make. Am I just going to complain? Or say, you know what? Today makes the difference. Today. Before God Almighty, it's not a doctor saying it. It's not me looking in the mirror, psyching myself up. It's Jesus Christ saying, stretch it out. Very simple. Extremely easy to understand. Stretch it out. For those who are okay, and there's gifts, Paul wrote his buddy, Timothy, his son in the faith, who was a senior pastor, and said, dude, you better stir up that gift. This is the same guy who said, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. You wouldn't know it these days. So many Christians are running around afraid. God's given us a spirit of, of power and of love and of a sound mind. So that's a time when the world is losing its mind. We can have a sound mind. And then he says, hey, Timothy, stir up that gift. You know what I'm talking about. I know you're a senior pastor. I know God has more for you. Stir it up. Get it going. See, it's a word picture. The Bible's full of them. And it's talking about this altar that would always have a fire on it. And it was the priest's responsibility every morning, every night, make sure there's good firewood on that thing. Make sure that's your responsibility. No one else is doing You make sure on the altar of your heart there's really good wood that's going to burn bright for Jesus Christ. I wonder how many here really need to hear the Lord go, stir up your gift. Can you say, I magnify my ministry? Or is it more like, I'm, I magnify my surfing? Eh, not lately, trust me. I magnify my shopping. I magnify my education. How about I magnify my ministry? That's what it, Paul is all about here. How about this? You might ask, well, what is my gift? I think that's a great question. For me, you might have heard this part of my testimony. When I came to this church, uh, just coming, I was still backslidden. It was ugly. I'd been in jail. Just didn't want anything to do with Jesus. If you didn't, I came for a two-month vacation. It's 48 years ago. I literally thought, Jesus will not bother me in Sunset Beach, Hawaii. 
First day went out of the pipeline. Just, God's not going to bother me. And then I, I realized, you wanted me here? Are you serious? This is paradise. I'm good. And then I go, yeah, back then, there, there was, <laughs> there's brain damage now, but it was really serious back then. That's what green alcohol and beer and pot at the same time, just, I know there's stuff dead up there that should be alive. So when I came back, I'm going, I'd always ask for prayer. Hey, <laughs> you want prayer? Yeah, could you pray for my brain? And people were reluctant. I don't know if I have that much faith. <laughs> Sorry, you're cuckoo. I wasn't that bad, but it wasn't that good. You know, it's just like, and God would heal me. I, I would start memorizing scriptures and my brain started functioning correctly again. And then I thought, God's never going to use me. You know, like I'm a paper cup Christian. You know, a paper cup, you use it once, crush it, and throw it away. And that's, I thought, I, he used me once. I backslid. He's tossing. He goes, okay, sit in the corner, and I'll tolerate you being here and maybe let you into heaven if you're lucky. And then I realized, God said, I don't use paper cups. I use coffee mugs. I use them. I wash them out. I use them. I wash them out. There's room for me in this church. Where do I start? Colossians 3.17. I read that and it jumped off the page. It's probably the first verse I memorized. Whatever you do in word or in deed, boy, I better get it right now, right? Do it unto the Father in the name of the Son. Whatever you do. I thought, okay, I can sweep. <laughs> I still pick up trash. Uh, I can do that. I like what Henry Blackaby says in his workbook, Experiencing God. He says, look around, see what God's doing, and join him. So guess where I'll be today? Right here, 3.30. I don't know what they need. There I am. I'm looking around. I'm seeing God. If you haven't been here on Fish and Lows, it's awesome what God's doing. I see people stepping out in their gifts like, you want me to pray for people? Seriously? Yeah, go. That one's yours. And they grow. It's amazing. You're looking around, seeing what God's doing, and, and join him. So Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. And watch what he does in your life. Now, it's good to understand when you're doing spiritual gifts, when you want to magnify your ministry, it always includes other people. You say, no, I'm behind the scenes. But you're doing it unto other people. You're doing it in a Christ-like way, right? Like, you know, the hands of Martha, the heart of Mary. You know that story where I want to do it right. I, I want to do it where I can present it like an offering to God and say, could you bless this? And, oh, yes. I'm all about blessing that. Yeah, it's just I'm doing it in your name. I'm doing it in your nature. I'm doing it unto you for your glory. And, and so this, the, this mission, it always involves other people. Years ago, 1978, most of you weren't born, which makes me feel like, what was it like knowing Barney and Fred Flintstone? I just, I didn't know them. But the thing is, I'm old. Our first mission trip from this church was to Poland, 1978. We have a Polish girl here, right? Katie, you're Polish. Anybody else? No, you're not Polish? You've been to Poland? <laughs> you blew it. You're one chance. I'm just, anybody else from Poland? Yeah? Oh, Bob Brasser. Jesus Christ, drogda pravda i zice. 
Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life in Polish. But the thing is, we went there, and on our way out, we we're going to do some sightseeing. So we're coming out of Poland, and we couldn't get out right away. So we, somebody go, hey, well, let's go to Auschwitz. What's Auschwitz? You'd think I would know. This is a concentration camp from World War II. Next door to my house in Maryland, we had a couple with their, their number tattooed on their arm who had spent time in the Jewish concentration camps the Nazi concentration. You'd think I would know, but I didn't know. What is this? So there were seven of us on this trip, and we went to Auschwitz. I don't know what it is. Concentration. Oh, okay, okay. One of the girls, her name was Jamie, not Jamie Angel, another Jamie, was a completed Jew, meaning she was born Jewish, met the real Messiah, and was now a Christian, so she's a completed Jew. So she's got a more intense connection with Auschwitz than I do. And we go through there, and it's brutal. They have pictures like you cannot believe what they did to these people. And, and they have like things like this big, you know, like a four by eight glass, and all their eyeglasses were there, just thousands of them. And other places they'd have this and that. And, and then we literally walked through the dummy shower rooms. So it was huge. The men and women naked thrown in there saying, you're going to get a shower. Well, instead of water coming out, gas came out and killed everybody. And on the other side, as you go through the other door, they went right to the ovens and burned them, cremated them, got rid of them. I'm just going, wow, this is crazy. Jamie, Jamie goes, my forefathers were here. And she's just stunned. And you have to understand, I, when I came back to the Lord, the pendulum went from one way to, I was super strict, and I'm married, and here's my wife, and just, I don't. And Jamie was dying. That night, this, there were seven of us on this trip, and we're sharing our experiences, and she turned to me and said, Mike, I only needed a hug. I didn't hug. Then you go, well, Mike, now you're a hug waiting to happen. It goes back to 1978. When this girl was dying, I didn't know what to do because spiritual gifts involve people. Involve people. You're not in this alone. It's not about you. It's about you, God using you to meet others' needs. Then it always involves other people. Now, here's the last one. And after this, I want to see if people want prayer. Give you a heads up. Satan wanted to deceive more people. So, it's a story. It's not true. He asked his demons, how are we going to deceive more people? We don't have enough going to hell. First demon says, let's tell people there's no hell. Satan goes, oh, that's stupid. Jesus spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven. You know that, right? Yeah, I was thinking, when's the last time I warned someone about hell? I was asked at the conference, can you put your hand on the Bible like we do in a court in America and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and God help me do it? That includes help. That includes warning. And so Satan goes, tell them there's no help. They don't believe that. Jesus spoke so much. Second demon, uh, let's tell them there's no heaven. Satan, well, that's stupid. Jesus ascended right into heaven, and that's everybody's hope. Third demon. 
Let's tell them there is a hell. What? Let's tell them there is a heaven. What? Just tell them there's no hurry. It's all true, but you got time. What? Billy Graham once said, no man is prepared to live until he's first prepared to die. The Bible goes, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to do something about it, not, oh, well, yeah, someday I'll get right with God. What if you don't have someday? And I want to ask, hey, can the worship team come up? Because I want to ask, maybe, maybe today's your day to get right with God. Maybe you came with this thing you've been hiding. And I, I'm not here to make a spectacle. Come on, I've got enough issues of my own. But maybe you're going, could I really be set free? Would Jesus literally meet my need today? Yeah, that's what he's all about. If you go to, go to church with Jesus, radical things can happen. And I wonder how many here today are going, I have no clue what my spiritual gift is. But you know Romans 12 where it says, I beseech you therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice? I can do that. And then he can do whatever he wants. Father, what, what do we magnify? We magnify our superior knowledge. Magnify trying to impress people? Or do we magnify the spiritual gifts you've given us? Meaning not holding back, not having to be begged and pleaded with, but this is why we're here. I dare not miss this opportunity.